A reading from the scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judged the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous God, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The good word of the Lord. We're only a week or so from finishing the book of 2 Timothy, which is very likely Paul's final word to his young friend and ministry partner, uh, Timothy. And Paul's been telling Timothy that following Jesus is a hard road, but to persevere. And in this section of chapter 4, which you just heard read, it really starts to sound like last words. And you can almost imagine Timothy sitting there reading this, beginning to just well up with tears as he thinks about the impending loss by execution of his father figure and mentor. And the loss of a beloved leader and a guide, I mean, this is a scary thing. Uh, Besides just being sad, I imagine Timothy would feel on his own, vulnerable. You know, like Tolkien's fellowship uh, without Gandalf, Simba without Mufasa. How, How do you go forward? without their guidance and counsel and the feeling of comfort that you get from knowing there's someone wiser than you watching your back. But Paul knows that his final end is coming, so he gives Timothy a final parting charge. And what a, what a charge it is. I mean, even the wind-up is kind of intense. I mean, look at how it starts, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So I don't know if you've taken many oaths, you know, or been given too many formal charges in your life, but this one to me seems pretty sturdy. You know, it feels a bit like um, maybe an army officer or a judge taking their oath of office, or maybe like a couple on their wedding day taking their vows. Or someone in court, you know, puts their hand on a Bible and uh, raises, raises their right hand and Uh, swears in, or Inigo Montoya swears on the soul of his father, Domingo Montoya. I mean, it's kind of got that sort of weight to to the charge. So let's look at the charge that Paul gives to Timothy, and then there's two reasons for it. So first, he tells him the charge, what he wants him to do, and then he gives him two reasons for it. So let's look at both of those. First, the charge. I'll read some of this again. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, 
rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So what's the charge? Preach the Word. That's kind of his main, his main thrust here. That's the primary charge. All the other stuff in verse 2 is kind of a bit on how to go about that. But the main charge is that phrase, preach the Word. Now, right off the bat, uh, I need to say that most of us have a mental image that comes to mind when I say a phrase like, preach the Word. Probably of someone like me doing something like this with a Bible behind a pulpit uh, or a lectern. And so this passage, you know, is often used for like pastoral ordination services and things like that. And while that's certainly a valid application of the text, it's far too narrow. Uh, Preaching the Word isn't just referring to pastors preaching sermons from the Bible. The word for preaching and the word for word (laughs) are are used much more broadly than this in the New Testament. Uh, The best example I can give you is from the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 8. There's great persecution breaking out against the church um, the right, right at the beginning. Uh, and it's just after Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is, is stoned to death. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, so the church was all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul, who later becomes Paul, who's writing the letter that we're studying, 2 Timothy, he was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So notice it's not the apostles that are doing all of the heralding or all of the preaching. It's the ones who are scattered the ordinary Christians. So does this mean that all those Christians went off and found some pulpits somewhere and found a building, set the pulpit up, and started preaching sermons? No, that's, that's not the image we're supposed to have in mind. It simply means they went about gossiping the gospel. To preach the word just means to herald or to announce good news. So back in the day, you know, heralds, these were the guys that went from town to town to announce the news of the empire. Maybe it was from a battle to let them know the outcome or some political decision that happened back in Rome. The heralds would go out and proclaim the news. So preach the word really is more like what we think of as evangelism than like what I'm doing right now, formal, formal preaching, you know, with a a Bible and a script and people listening and a podium. This is much more like informal evangelism. So then Paul's charge to Timothy is it just for people like me? I say all that to say, I'm not the only one on the hook this morning. It's you guys too. It's not just for pastors. It's for all Christians to be carriers of the message of Jesus. Now, just a couple of things about his, uh, his charge for us to preach the word by way of application. A couple of things to note. First, if this is our main charge, to preach the word, then that means the main thing Christians believe and promote is not necessarily how to live or 10 steps to get your life together, how to be a better person. It's news about what God has done for us in Jesus. It's news. As it's been said, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. Christianity's main message is not something that you must do to achieve salvation. 
or even first and foremost, something about how you should live your life, though that is important. But it's first and foremost news that something has been done on your behalf. Now, it changes the way you live, for sure, but it's first and foremost news of what God has done for us. So, Timothy and we are called, we're called to carry a message, to share a news that something outside of us has happened, that God has broken into the world in Jesus and rescued us by his death and resurrection. That's, that's news. But also, secondly, this, if this is our main charge to preach the word, it means that we don't get to make up our message. Like they say, we don't write the mail, we just deliver it. It's something we're entrusted to pass along accurately. Christians don't get to invent a new thing that they want to say or whatever seems popular in the moment, in our day and age and culture. We're not at liberty to do that. We're entrusted with a message. Proclaim the word. So with that in mind, uh, before we move on, Paul does give us a bit on how we're to go about fulfilling the charge of preaching or heralding the word of the gospel. Look back, you know, in just those verses, uh, verses one and two, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Just some things to hang on to here. I think that means we're to proclaim the gospel consistently, confrontationally, and carefully. Consistently, confrontationally, carefully. Uh, let me unpack that just a bit. First, he says, proclaim the gospel consistently. I think this is what he means by be ready in season and out of season. Whether it's convenient for Timothy to share the good news or not, share anyway. Be ready. Be prepared. Be settled enough in the basic contours of the Christian gospel so that when you get a chance to share, you don't feel like, you need to step away for a few hours and prepare, prepare some notes, and then come back and share. I'm not saying you have to have all of the questions answered for people, that just, are you familiar enough with the basic contours of the Christian message where if you had a chance to share, you could more or less give the good news? I mean, it's um, kind of like if you go to an open mic night or out to karaoke with your friends. You gotta have your go-to karaoke song ready. You know, so when the time comes and that song starts playing, you don't have to go home, practice the lyrics, come back and hope they hit it on another Thursday night. You know, uh, a year or two ago, Ashley and I were on an anniversary trip uh, in the Northeast. We were in Maine and we were eating at this restaurant uh, by the water up on a dock balcony. And on the floor below us, there's a musician, you know, with a guitar, microphone, just playing songs. It was really nice. And I thought, oh man, this would be a great opportunity for me to like slip away to the bathroom, uh, find my way downstairs, go pay the musician to let me play his guitar and sing a song and serenade Ashley from the bottom deck, you know, where she couldn't see me. She could just hear my voice. Oh my gosh, that's my husband, you know. And, um, <laughs> but it turns out all I know by heart is like contemporary Christian worship music. And so... <laughs> I, the song I would have wanted to play, I would have had to pull up like the chords and the lyrics and kind of work my way through it. And I didn't have Wi-Fi there and it was just, some, so I chickened out and I told her about my idea and just hoped that it was the thought that counts, you know. Um, but Paul is saying, be ready enough, be practiced, 
be rehearsed enough in the basic truths of the gospel so that if and when you have a chance to speak with someone about your faith, you can do it at the drop of a hat. And that's where some of the evangelistic tools like the three circles or the, the story or two ways to live, these things can be really handy because they give you some basic hooks to remember the key components of the gospel message. And if you're not familiar with those resources or you want some help in, in that, just let me know. I'll hook you up. So, But not only should Timothy and us share when it does and doesn't feel convenient to us, I also wonder if part of what Paul means when he says preach the gospel in season and out of season is he means preach the gospel whether or not that message is in vogue in your cultural moment, in season and out of season. You know, in many places in the world, it seems like people are, are very attracted to the Christian message right now. There's places in the world where Christianity is growing rapidly. But in other places, like in most of Europe, much of North America, it uh, just seems like fewer and fewer people are interested. But Paul says in both places, where you think it will be well-received, or even if you don't think it'll be so well-received, preach the gospel anyway. Do it consistently. Second, though, gospel sharing is confrontational as well, consistently confrontationally. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, I need to clarify, clarify here pretty quickly. I I don't mean confrontational in terms of tone or disposition, getting up in somebody's face angrily or picketing with turn or burn posters. That's not what I mean at all, and that's not what Paul means. But you have to realize that simply the act of believing in and talking about the Christian message is by its very nature confrontational. You're telling someone, there's a real truth, there's a real God. You have a real problem. Jesus offers a real solution. It's the only way that it can be dealt with. I mean, it's, it's a confrontational message, and there's just, there's kind of no way around that. And I, I imagine for anyone here listening who's not a Christian, you might be thinking, yeah, and this is the part of Christianity I can't stand. You know, it's great if you want to live and believe whatever you want to live and believe, but why do you have to try to drag me into it? It's true for you, it's good for you, that's great, leave me alone. And at one level, um, at one level I get that. I don't particularly enjoy disagreeing with people, and I don't particularly enjoy making people feel uncomfortable either. Uh, And I certainly have no interest in forcing someone to believe something they don't want to believe or don't think is true. But Christians are in kind of a tight spot here. We don't just think that the gospel is true for us. We think it's true, period. And of course, we we know that not everyone thinks that, and that's fair. We We respect that. It's totally your right to not believe as we do, but we do think it's the truth and that the truth matters. So we at least feel like we have to talk about it. Um, ben, ben Sixsmith uh, is a journalist who's an agnostic. He's an agnostic journalist. But he's written very insightfully about some of the recent celebrity pastor scandals. And uh, he says this, this is a quote. Um, he says, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. 
If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. You know, he's saying, if you have a faith that's worth changing my mind to believe, shouldn't it make me uncomfortable at points? You would expect that. And he's got very good insight. So Paul says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. It's going to be confrontational. But then third, gospel sharing must also be done carefully. We're not just supposed to rebuke, exhort, reprove. We are to do so, Paul says, with complete patience and teaching. Not brash, insensitive, rude, coercive, manipulative, but patient. He says, be careful, but thoughtful. I mean, do you see the balance that he strikes here in this passage? Perfect balance. Um, Some of us are very good at the direct confrontational um, side of things. We are truth people. And some of us are very, very careful. We're very, very tactful, and we're not so good at the confrontation. We're very grace. Paul's saying we need both. Yes, there's confrontation, but it's a patient confrontation that comes with teaching, a willingness to explain things to people like teachers do. Have you ever tried to teach second grade, third grade? It takes patience. It takes time. Complete patience in teaching. You have to understand that people um, people's all start from totally different places in their understanding and readiness to believe. So don't assume too much about what they might know or don't know. Don't rush them. Be patient. I mean, I especially think this is important these days as fewer and fewer people are growing up in homes and places and in a culture um, where Christian beliefs were just kind of assumed or built into their, their home, even if they, they weren't professing Christians, just kind of the, some of those basic beliefs were still there. That's not always the case anymore. So it may take quite a bit of time and conversations for people to, to be open to faith. Uh, there's a missiology a uh, missions professor and church planter in Amsterdam named Stefan Pass. Stefan Pass, I think. Uh, he grew up in kind of the Bible Belt area of the Netherlands where it was at least fairly normal to be a Christian in some of the smaller villages. But he said, all that changed when I moved to Amsterdam. He said, in Amsterdam, about 3% of the population go to church. Half of that are immigrants from Africa that live in the Netherlands. And the other half are he would say immigrants like me who moved from the Bible Belt into Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, it's not normal to be a Christian. He said, when we met our neighbors, when we first moved there, they were surprised by our faith. They said, oh, you mean you're religious? Like you take it seriously. You're strict and all that. Interesting. He said, it felt like we practiced one of those extinct professions Uh, that you see demonstrated in open-air museums, like being a blacksmith or a basket weaver or a letterpress printer. He said, to them, we were somehow members of a lost tribe that had missed the boat to civilization. Our opinions about God, Jesus, and the church, uh, they might have been mildly interesting from an archaeological point of view, but to them, they were totally obsolete. He said, we came to Amsterdam to plant new churches and contribute to mission. And we did that, but he said, I soon realized that when we got there, we would have to start a lot farther back with people, and we would have to endure with complete patience and teaching. So this is Paul's big charge here. 
to proclaim the gospel consistently, even confrontationally, and then carefully. So that's his charge. Preach the word. Do it consistently, confrontationally, carefully. And then there's two reasons that he gives us for why. Why should you devote your life, pastor or not, everyday Christian, to proclaiming the good news of Jesus? Reason number one, itchy ears, uh, verses three through five. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So the first reason is actually kind of counterintuitive. He says we should proclaim the gospel because it's only going to get more difficult to do so. (laughs) So you're going to need to work hard at this because people are just going to get more entrenched, more settled into what they want to think and believe, and it's going to be harder to pull them off of that. And I think these days, man, it is super easy to find someone, blogger, podcaster, author, who agrees with almost everything you think. I mean, thanks to the miracle of the internet, it's not too hard to find someone who says exactly what you want to say, which only makes you more entrenched in your position because now, ah, sources, I've got sources, you know. But is that really a good way to go about things when it comes to God stuff? Just finding sources for what you would like to believe. I've used this example from Pastor Tim Keller before, but I think it's a really helpful way to think about this. Uh, in the movie, The Stepford Wives, uh, the main character is Matthew Play. I don't, I don't know their names. When famous actors play people in movies, I never remember the names of the characters. I only remember the names of the actors. So Matthew Broderick and Nicole Kidman, they play a couple that moves away from uh, their upwardly mobile but very stressful life in the city to this more upscale suburban Connecticut community. But when they get there, something's, something's way off. They don't know what it is. Uh, all, the, all the wives are extremely put together, always. Uh, very docile. They never uh, disagree with their husbands. They're even subservient, uh, perfectly agreeable. And as the movie goes on, spoiler alert, you find out that all the women in Stepford have essentially been replaced with robot lookalikes. And Matthew Broderick will have to decide by the end of the movie if he wants to replace his wife with the dolled up, completely fake version of her, or continue with her as like real, the real wife. Uh, and as he gets to that, they've had a difficult uh, patch in their marriage when they get there. So he's kind of reflecting, oh, no more arguing. No more being shown up by my wife. She'll do whatever I want. But he realizes that he'll lose the real person. Here's the point. If you have a God who never disagrees with you, never makes you uncomfortable, never asks hard things of you, never causes you to reconsider your beliefs and opinions, do you have a real God on your hands or do you have a Stepford God? That's one of the signs of a genuine relationship with another being is that you actually expect them to disagree with you sometimes. They challenge you. And if you expect that from a friend or a spouse, why not God? If he's a real God, shouldn't he step on your toes sometimes? Shouldn't he say things that make you uncomfortable? Wouldn't you expect him to challenge you? 
the way that you think and maybe there's some things that he thinks that don't always nicely fit with your cultural sensibilities. You know, we can even try to create a step for God by keying in on certain parts of Scripture that we like and resonate with and ignore other parts of Scripture that we just don't like as much. You know? So I think Paul would say, don't listen to the pundits who most strike your fancy at the moment, but stay close to the Scriptures. Let God challenge you through them. Let Him disagree with you. It's the mark of a real God. Test everything by the full counsel of Scripture. Because Paul says that lots and lots of people are going to have itching ears, which seems like a way of saying they always want something new, something novel, something interesting, not the same old, same old gospel message. Give us something new. And so they'll wander off into myths and speculations. But as for you, Paul says, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says, be sober-minded, steady as she goes, Timmy. If this was a text combo with Timmy, Paul would totally send the keep calm and carry on meme, you know. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's perfect. Um, he says, endure suffering. Not something you really like to hear from your mentor. My motto would be more like suffering, avoid it, or fix it. But it's sometimes, apparently, we simply must endure it. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. Some are more gifted at this than others, for sure, but Timothy was still called to give himself to the hard work of reaching others for Christ, as we all are, even if that doesn't come super easily to us. Fulfill your ministry. Finish your race. Finish the course God has set for you. So this is reason number two why Timothy must give himself, or sorry, this is reason number one why Timothy must give himself and we must give ourselves to the preaching of the word of Christ because it's going to be difficult at times. People may not be receptive to it, but we should endure anyway. Don't give up. That's the first reason. Itchy ears. Don't give up. The second reason, verses 6 through 8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So what's the second reason? Why should you give your life to preaching the word? Well, because your race will soon be over too. The finish line is not as far as you think. What will you want to look back over your life and be able to say when the end comes for you? Paul realizes that his life is almost over. He's living out his last days rotting in a Roman prison. His execution is imminent. As a Roman citizen, he may have had the luxury of being put to death by decapitation instead of crucifixion, but we don't know for sure. His ending here, I, I mean, if you're just looking at Paul's life from the outside looking in, it could seem really tragic. He served God all his life. Shouldn't he end up with a better outcome than, than this? Doesn't seem like a terribly happy ending. At least I think I would be tempted to feel this way if it was my life. I mean, it's quite an idealized, romanticized notion for Paul to die as a martyr. That's great. But I would much rather have, and he died quietly in his bed after several years of joyful retirement, and um, 
That's not Paul's end. Uh, John Piper famously tells of two women from his city who were missionaries and unexpectedly died on the mission field. Uh, One was Ruby Eliezen, over 80. She was single her whole life. She was a nurse, and she poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places of the world. And then there was Laura Edwards, who was a medical doctor. And in her retirement, she partnered up with Ruby. Uh, She also, she was pushing 80, and they were going from village to village in Cameroon. And one day, the brakes in their car give out, they drive over a cliff, and they die instantly. And Piper's question was a good one. Is this a tragedy? These two women, in their 80s, their whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts would throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity in a, in a, in a moment. Is that a tragedy? Is Paul's death a tragic way to go? He doesn't seem to think so. If you listen to his words, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Don't you want to be able to say something like that at the end? It's not a bad epitaph, you know. If so, then give yourself to living for the sake of spreading the gospel. I mean, there are many other wonderful gifts that God gives us to live with, family, success, perhaps houses, land, or achievements, but none of them can bear the weight of being what we live for. And that is a huge difference. Paul has such an unshakable sense of what he lives for that even his deathbed can't throw him into fits of despair or regret. He has a purpose in life that even death couldn't steal because he lived for something incorruptible, heralding the love of God in Jesus Christ. I don't think everyone dies like this. And that's because not everybody lives for what Paul lived for. And so this is his great ending. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, or at last, finally, here's what I'm looking forward to. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, uh, in the ancient Olympics, the winners didn't get medals. They received a crown or a wreath that would be placed on their heads by, by the judge at the end. And this seems to be what Paul has in mind here, an Olympic awards uh, ceremony. And back then, just as, as it is now, it's a huge deal to be an Olympic winner. I mean, small towns would supposedly knock a hole in the wall of the town to build a new gate, a brand new gate, for the victor to ride through when they got back to their hometown. It was a big deal, lots of fanfare, lots of applause. And I mean, even if you watch the Olympics now, it's not that different. It can be super emotional for the people in the Olympics. This is their, this is their life, you know. Uh, in 2008, there was a German weightlifter named Matthias Steiner. 
and he was in the bronze position uh, to, to win a bronze medal, but after several failed uh, clean and jerk attempts, he needed to lift an additional 25 pounds in order to win, which when you're lifting like over 500 pounds, doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me, but it's a huge deal to add 25 more pounds when you're lifting these incredible amounts of weight. But what's most compelling about his story is that he had promised his wife that he would win Olympic gold, but she died, tragically, uh, just a few months before the Olympic Games. So when he goes up for his final lift, uh, it's pretty awesome. I could explain it to you, but it's just better to watch it. So let's see if we can watch this and then we'll talk some more. There were other people watching and cheering, but Steiner was competing for one person, really. He dedicated his medal to his late wife, and he went on to say in an interview, he said, I managed to lift it because I had this strong innermost urge. I'm not the superstitious type, and I don't believe in higher powers, but I hope she saw me. I wish. Paul believes that God does see him and loves him and is cheering him on and waiting at the finish, crown in hand. Paul doesn't earn this crown of righteousness or earn the approval of God. You see, it's laid up for him. It's reserved for him by Christ, waiting for the day when his approval and applause and pleasure will be lavished on him face to face. And this isn't just for like super Christians like Paul, but for all who love Jesus, for all who have loved is appearing, he says. In Christ, yes, God already approves of us and cheers for us, but one day it will be fully felt, fully completed. And Christ himself will welcome us home with a fervor that the most animated Olympic coach cannot hold a candle to, and we will forever know the smile of God upon us. It's what we were made for and long for most deeply. That's why Paul gives his life to proclaiming the gospel. That's why he strives to keep going in his Christian life. And that's why he makes these some of his last words to Timothy and for us. Because he sees 
that there's a crown, that there's an embrace waiting at the finish. So run the race, fight the good fight, keep the faith, preach the word, because your race will soon be done and the joy of Jesus' embrace awaits you. And that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your word, for this word, your good word for us today. To, to preach the word, to be a herald of the good news, to share it with others. This is, this is hard for us, Lord, perhaps especially these days. It's not an easy thing to talk about. So in our weakness, would you help us? In our weakness, through your word today, would you, would you use this word to help us see that it deeply matters for us to give our lives to the sharing of the good news? So we pray that your acceptance of us in Christ your approval upon us, your smile for us, you cheering us on would motivate us all the more to make the love of God known amongst our neighbors and the nations. So strengthen us in this, we pray today, by your spirit in Christ. We pray, amen.